Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, I'm Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you here at Crosswinds. And uh, there's one of the things you always hear at Crosswinds is we are about trying to reach people with Jesus. And we do that in a variety of ways. And one of the ways we try to reach people with Jesus is simply by being friends with people around us and inviting people around us to church or to events that happen here at church. And I want to give you an example of how that takes place uh, with Jeremy Liu, who's our worship director. And he has a young adult's uh, Bible study that takes place down in Spencer. And so he's been doing that for a while, and these young adults continue to come, and they continue to bring their friends. And They have friends that come from Spencer. They have friends that come from Wapaton. They have friends that come all the way from Lynn Grove. We even have people that come all the way from Jackson to be at the Bible study in in Spencer. So a special shout out to the young college age and then young career age adults who are just trying to reach people with Jesus by inviting friends to a, a Bible study. And that's one of the great ways that we can be about our mission of reaching people with Jesus. Now this morning we are going to be continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Hopefully you have your sermon outlines. Uh, last week we were in 2 Samuel chapter, or actually two weeks ago we were in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I titled that message, The Rise of David. Because if you were with us, you know David has been constantly on the run for chapters upon chapters upon chapters, just running for his life. But finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, things began to come together. He was anointed king over the nation, the entire nation at this time. And then he was able to get Jerusalem as the capital city. We saw how that took place. Um, He received... um, recognition from international leaders around him. We saw that. He was able to push the Philistines out of Israel all the way from what's called Giza to Giba to Gezer, which is a large area of tract. He was very successful in all these things. And things are looking really, really good. But as we get into um, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David, we're going to see, has the best of intentions still. His desire is going to be to bring the ark from a place of obscurity, to bring it into the city of Jerusalem and make the ark and make God the center of the nation's life. But things are not going to go the way that David planned. Even though David is an amazing leader and he's doing things really well, he will learn that when it comes to approaching God, even though he is God's anointed king, he has to approach God the same way that everybody else does, in humility and in obedience to God's word. Because if he doesn't approach that God that way, it'll end in complete disaster. This chapter breaks into two parts. The first part is David tries to to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and it doesn't go well because of a lack of obedience to God's word. It ends in disaster. The second part of this chapter is David tries to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and it actually does go well because he focuses on obeying God's word. 
the big idea that I want you to remember uh, when you leave here, at least one of the big ideas, I put on the very top of your outline, it's this. It's obedience to God's word that brings blessing from God. Obedience to God's word is what brings blessing to God, from God. And that's what David learns today. So let's begin. We're going to start with the first one, which is disobedience to God's word brings disaster, which is David's first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Let's start with the first two verses. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. As I said a moment ago, uh, Two weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we saw that David was able to defeat the Philistines, and for the first time since Saul lost them at the battle of Mount Gilboa, David was able to drive them out, and the text said, from Geba to Gezer. Now, those two names rhyme together, and I didn't have a chance to get a map together to put it up there to show you, but this is a large tract of land. It's about 20 miles wide and about six miles high. So what David did is he pushed the Philistines out of the center of the land, opening up a healthy corridor between the northern and the southern kingdom. And this enables David to do what is about to take place in this chapter, which is to finally bring the ark back to Jerusalem and make the ark the center of uh, the life of God's people. Now David understood that bringing the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem is a really big deal. You notice he says he uh, had 30,000 chosen men to join him in this one. In previous generations, we know Saul had gone to war with 3,000 chosen men. And he had says that twice. When David captured the city of Jerusalem, he did it with his chosen men, but it doesn't tell us how many there were. But here, David is gathering 30,000 chosen men, like 10 times larger than what we've seen before. In other words, this is the biggest event that is about ready to take place in the life of Israel since David's been anointed king and even maybe an event even bigger than David being anointed king. Everybody is going to be there and to be part of this procession. Now, the action begins at a place called Baal Judah, which simply means, if you translate that, the lords of Judah. But elsewhere, this exact same location is called Kiriath-Jerim, which means the city of forests. And you wonder, why is it called Baal-Judah here instead of Kiriath-Jerim? If you study this out, Baal-Judah is a very old name, a very forgotten name, of this location. And I think there's some significance here. The reason the author is using an old name and a forgotten name of this location is because this location where the ark has been kept for the last 70 years 
has been a place that has been forgotten about by God's people. It's been neglected by God's people. Even though there is a great treasure here, which is the Ark of the Covenant. God's people have not sought it for the last 70 years. They've neglected it for the last 70 years. Now, Baal Judah, or Kiriath Jerim, is nine miles west of Jerusalem, and it's the center of this tract of land that, as I said, from Geba to Gezer, that David has driven the Philistines out from. Seventy years be- before this, the Philistines, you remember, had captured the ark, and it didn't go well for them because God had inflicted tumors on them, and God had inflicted a plague of mice on them. They put the ark on a cart. They sent it back to Israel. It arrived at a place called Beth Shemesh. The men of Beth Shemesh were excited to have it back, but they were probably auto mechanics because they wanted to pop the hood and look under the hood of the ark, which did not go well for them because you don't pop the hood on the ark and look in. And 70 of them died because of that. And so what we know is is at that time, the ark was brought to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And that's where it has been left there in Kiriath-Jerim, also known as Baal Judah, for the last 70 years. And the people have forgotten it. The people have neglected it. The people have pretty much forgotten God. They had neglected God. But David, David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem to restore the ark as well as God to the center of the life of God's people. And notice what it says about this ark. It doesn't just call it the ark like we would call it. It calls it the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This ark is serious business because God's presence has been, God has chosen to have his presence dwell on top of the ark between the two angels on the ark or the angelic figurines if you want to call it on top of the ark. Very serious stuff. Let me tell you a little bit more about the ark. The ark was uh, three foot and nine inches wide, or long, I should say, this way. It was two feet, three inches wide, as well as two feet, three inches high. It was made in the days of Moses, according to God's instructions. It was covered in gold. It had wooden poles also covered in gold that were used to, to carry it. The top of the ark had a solid piece of pure gold, upon, which is known as the mercy seat, that had two um, cherubim, which are sort of angelic figurines that were uh, hammered into it. Now, inside of the ark was the original Ten Commandments given to Moses, as well as a jar of manna, as well as Aaron's rod that budded. David is going to try to bring revival to the nation and move the ark from an obscure, forgotten place to the center of the nation's life. In the book of Chronicles, or First Chronicles, it's, there's a parallel account of this whole scene we're going to be looking at. So as we go through our study, I'll be bringing out some of these uh, verses from Chronicles to give us a little bit more information of what was taking place. And in First Chronicles 13.3, we read this. 
David said, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. It had been neglected. It had been forgotten. And here is interesting. David is not just interested in securing the nation. He's not just interested in establishing the nation. David is interested in the nation's relationship with God and restoring that relationship with God. Because he knew that even if the nation was doing very well and it was there enjoying prosperity, things are going well, if their relationship with God was not strong, if it was not right, it would ultimately spell disaster for the entire nation. Now, in a similar way, Jesus and focus on him is to be the focus of our life today. In the life of God's people today, just as it was then, our focus is not just to be on becoming successful, becoming wealthy, uh, becoming successful in our business, and becoming successful in our way of life. Our focus is also to be on having success in our relationship with God and keeping God at the center of our life and not ne- neglecting him. And that begins, I think, with self-leadership. We have to choose to make time to read our Bible. We have to choose to make time to be at church. We have to choose to make time to pray because if you're like me, you know that that time just doesn't magically appear. There's always more than enough stuff to do in life, right? Exactly. So we have to say, hey, I need self-discipline and I need to choose to make God the center of my life and make time for him because it's so easy to neglect him. And then I would also talk to those who are husbands, to those who are fathers. Husbands and fathers, they don't just have just leadership at work, but they also have leadership in their, their family. And as husbands and fathers, hey, we're responsible for setting the spiritual temperature in our home. We're responsible if we have children to make sure that our children are getting to church. We're responsible if we have children to make sure that we're reading the Bible to them at night. We're responsible to make sure we're praying for them and with them when they they go to bed. Because just as David realized, he didn't just have to worry about the, the leadership of the nation, but he needed to worry about the spiritual temperature in the nation. And that's what good leaders do. We have to do the same thing. Good leaders have to focus on the spiritual life of their family and the spiritual life of themselves. Now, while David, at this point, has a very good heart, and he's trying to lead the right way, and he's trying to do everything for the right reasons, he is about to learn a very painful lesson. David had not taken the time to consult the Bible and what the Bible says about moving the ark. He had not taken the time apparently to pray and ask God about what God says about moving the ark. And to understand what's about ready to happen next, we need some background. David knows the ark is not to be trifled with. The ark decimated the Philistines when they took it. Seventy years before this, it had killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh. God had killed when they tried to look into the ark. 
And God had given some very clear instructions about when you move the ark, how you move the ark. For instance, look what it says in Numbers chapter 4, 5 through 6. Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. They shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of moved, it's not to be available for anyone to look at. It's always to be covered. Next, Exodus 25. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The only way you move it is by the golden poles that go through the rings on the side of it, and people carry it. Numbers 4.15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the ark and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Koah shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. You don't touch the ark or you will die. And then Numbers 4.20, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. The men of Beth Shemesh found that one was true about 70 years before when they popped the lid on the ark. They died. And now we read how David chose to move the ark. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Io the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And you start to say to yourself, wait a minute, you guys missed the instruction book on this one. This is not the way you are to move the ark. How did they miss these instructions? Well, we know that for the last 70 years, the ark has been neglected. The people have neglected God. And apparently, David didn't even know this part of his Bible well. So when it came to moving the ark, this is probably how it went. David went to Abinadab's sons and says, guys, how should we move it? And they said, well, we don't know. But I know about 70 years before, it came from the Philistines on a cart. So maybe we should use a a cart. So here's where it gets interesting. David and Abinadab's sons drew their idea of how to move the ark um, from their gut instincts and from the world around them. They drew their instructions on how to move the ark more from the Philistines than they did God's word. And as a result, even though David's intentions are all good at this point, it will end in disaster because he's following his gut instincts and he's following the cues of the world around him instead of the word of God. And here is where is some very good application for us because, my friends, not much has changed, has it? Isn't this the way many churches operate today? 
the belief of many churches comes from what is going on in the culture around them and from their gut instincts within them instead of going to what the word of God says and obeying. People worship God the way they think is right, not the way God's word says is right. For example, uh, you find many churches taking their cue from their culture rather than the scriptures. Now, I'll give you one example, and I know this one's always controversial, but I, I figured I'd just start with this one. Many churches in some denominations are very comfortable affirming women as lead pastors, and, and they say, well, the reason we do that is because it's equal rights. It's equal times. Don't you know? Men and women are equal in every way, and that's exactly what they affirm and push forward. But they struggle. They just neglect what the Word of God says. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 through 13, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, let me pause for a moment so I clarify something. I am not saying in any way that women are incompetent or in any way that women are inferior in any way. Paul is simply pointing out here that just as men have responsibility to lead their wife and children at home, men have responsibility to lead their church home as well. Men are to be the teachers, at least the primary teachers in the church. This is not saying women are inferior. They're not inferior in any way. But what many people do is they will dismiss this passage. They will ignore this passage completely. Or they'll say, well, Paul was just addressing a particular sin issue in this church. But if you read it closely, where does Paul say this originates from? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The reason he says this comes from creation, not from sin. So churches have to wrestle. Are we going to follow the word of God or our gut instincts or the culture around us? You can tell many churches will skip the word of God on this passage. I'll give you another one. You know, many churches will also affirm lesbians and homosexuals as not just members in the church, but even leaders of the church. You've seen that, so have I. And they say, well, of course, look at our time. We're all out of the closet right now. This is something we want to be prideful in. This is something we want to celebrate. LGBTQ and a couple other letters in the alphabet that I lost track of, all want to throw it in there. But if you put your finger in the word of God, what does the word of God say about these things? Romans chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible says, Lesbianism, homosexuality, all this other stuff is not something to be celebrated. 
it is a sin of which people need to repent. And by the way, that's what all Christians are about, isn't it? The Bible shows us our sin and we repent of our sin and we run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sin. Doesn't matter if your sin is uh, anger or if your sin is lesbianism or homosexuality. It's sin of which the Bible shows us our sin so we can repent of it. So at this point, David, like so much of modern Christian culture, is listening to culture around him and his gut instincts, not the word of God, about how to move the ark. On the outside, everything looks good. David is well-intentioned about what he's doing. There are 30,000 people celebrating in this dignified process. By everybody celebrating on the outside, what is God thinking when he watches this? He's not happy. Look at the celebration going on in verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They've got a lot of noise going on here. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So they come to the flushing floor of Nacon. It must have you know, just been spring because they had potholes. <laughs> and Uzzah, I picture him, he's probably on the top of the cart, you know, running the reins because we know Io, the other guy's out front leading the oxen and the one oxen stumbles. It lurches the cart. Maybe one of the wheels ends up in a pothole. This thing doesn't have any suspension. It's going back and forth. The ark is tottering back and forth and Uzzah, in good-heartedness, not wanting the ark to fall, reaches back, takes a hold of it, and steadies it. It all happened in just a split second. Sort of a knee-jerk reaction. But what happens next? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. As it crumpled over, falls from the seat, the celebration stops, people look, 911 is called, he's pronounced dead on the scene. And those who knew their history went back in their mind to 70 years before where the men of Beth Shemesh tried to look in the ark and were struck dead for trifling with the ark. And Uzzah, it says here, died for his sin, but you know something? I don't even think Uzzah realized he was in sin. This is a great reminder for us that there are consequences for sin even if we do not realize we are engaging in sin. You wanna write down a key phrase, it's this. Whenever we sin, we suffer. Whenever we sin, we suffer. This is one of the reasons, by the way, I always encourage you to have a regular time in your Bible. 
I don't know if it's like you read a chapter a day. Just make a chapter a day. Sort of like an IV slow drip of the word of God coming into your life. Here is why that is so important. Because our gut instincts within us and the world around us is not telling us the truth. God's word is the truth. And when we read God's word and constantly have it in us, it shows us our sin so we can repent of our sin and keep our heart in sync with God. Now, there are times when we see things in our culture that we just sense our sin. We may not know exactly the right chapter or the right verse that quotes to it or applies to it, but if we're regularly in God's word, what happens is at least our spirit seems to be in sync with what God wants. And we have a gut instinct if something is wrong. Gut instinct, something is sinful, even if we don't have the exact chapter in verse but those who are not regularly in God's word. They don't know God's word, and I also think they're missing the proper gut instinct that responds in sync with God's word because they're more in sync with the culture around them than God's word that is given to them. Let me give you an example of this. It just struck me yesterday as I was doing some final preparations for this message. In my own quiet time that morning, I had read about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the question in the parable is the guy asks, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this parable. And it turns out the Samaritan, who the Samaritans and Jews are constantly in opposition with each other. The Samaritan goes out of his way and makes sacrifices to care for this Jew who's been mugged on the side of the road, even spending money on him. Who's our neighbor? It's anyone who's in need. And we have the ability to help, even if they're very, very different than us. Even if they're people that would normally be hated by us. You're not going to find that in the culture, are you? The culture says your neighbor is just the person that you like. The Bible says your neighbor is any person whose resources you have the ability to meet. See how the word of God reframes us into truth, truth that we miss if we, if we don't have our finger in the text? So here's what we have next. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. By the way, David was not angry at God. David was angry at what God did. He's trying to understand Hey, we're trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem, God. We're trying to do the right thing. Why did you strike this guy dead? And interestingly, he, the place was renamed Perez Uzzah, which means breaking out against Uzzah, which is the same kind of phraseology that was used two weeks ago to describe God breaking out against the Philistines. And David now understands God doesn't just break out against the Philistines, but he can even break out against his own people. Now, the thought came to mind. It seems to me that whenever we have a new era of history in the Bible, and when God's people are turning to him, there's always those people who seem to take God too casually, and God seems to uh, really reestablish his holiness with them. 
Remember at the beginning of the tabernacle being set up with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? Didn't they take God a little too casually? They offered unauthorized fire, and then we read about how fire came out from the Lord and destroyed them. You go to the New Testament, you find Ananias and Sapphira, beginning of the church, lying about their generosity at the very beginning, and what does God do? Strikes them dead. Here we have sort of the same thing going on. Revival taking place among God's people. The ark coming to to Jerusalem, no longer being neglected, but they're treating God casually, or at least, and Uzzah is struck dead. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He says, well, how can I have God come into the city? Because he's going to strike us dead. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And then we read, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So the first thing we learn is disobedience to the Lord brings disaster. Now we go to the second half of the chapter where obedience to God's word brings blessing. I always wonder, how do they decide to bring the ark of God to Obed-Edom's house? You've got to put it somewhere. Maybe they drew straws and Obed-Edom got the short one. <laughs> Nobody wants the ark because God kills people. But we see it goes a little bit differently. The ark comes to Obed-Edom's house, and it doesn't end in disaster. It ends in blessing, is what it says. And David starts to learn a lesson here. God didn't come among his people to destroy them, but he came among his people to give them joy in life. God didn't come to destroy his people, but to give them joy in life. God striking down Uzzadet, and God striking down the 70 men of Beth Shemesh 70 years before, and God destroying the Philistines. You know, this is not God's primary motivation to kill and destroy people. His primary motivation is to give them joy and life. Now, for us today, I thought about this. We don't have God among us in a golden box. We have God among us in the flesh where Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And what did he come to do? Did he come to destroy us? He come to save us. He came to become sin for us, to forgive our sin, to adopt us as brothers and sisters in Christ. He came to give us joy in life, which is why John 10.10 says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And David now realizes that God's desire is to bless his people, not to destroy his people. But the other thing David did is during the three months when the ark was at Obed-Edom's house, is he got out his Bible. He read, and I'm sure other people read, why did this end in disaster? What did we do wrong? Now in First Chronicles, I told you it's the parallel account of what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And First Chronicles 15 tells us about the things that David discovered. 
First Chronicles 15.2, and David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God this second time, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. We had the wrong people carrying the ark. And then we read, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as, the Mo as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. We tried a cart last time. That didn't work. We should be using the poles like God had commanded. And then in verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. This was our fault. We didn't obey God's word. That's why we suffered. Now in verse 12, so David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. But he, it's another party. It's another celebration. But by the way, it's a little different this time. It's rejoicing mixed with trembling at God's holiness. Because here's what we read. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. What are these sacrifices about? The ox out of Leviticus chapter one is typically the sacrifice of atonement for sin. If we're going to move the ark, we have to have our sin paid for. We want to have a sacrifice for sin. David earlier asked, how can the ark of the Lord come among me? How can it come to Jerusalem? The only way is if there is ways to have our sin paid for. Every six steps, <laughs> this is what it seems that he does. So David has learned God want, does want to bring life to his people. He wants to bring joy for, to his people. But the only way that God can come among his people if there's payment for sin. And the good news is, folks, we don't sacrifice a bull or a fattened animal to cover our sin, to have God among us. Jesus sacrificed himself. He died on the cross in our place for our sin to bring us to God. So God can dwell among us. In fact, the Holy Spirit can be in our very heart. And he's come there not to destroy us, but to bring us life, to bring us joy, and to bring us peace. Same thing. And here's where we go to the song where Jeremy started out with. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now here's where it's getting interesting. And it says, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now this becomes a little elusive. Some people think linen ephod, maybe he's wearing some kind of a little nightgown maybe wearing some kind of a risque clothing where he shows himself off when he dances before the Lord. And that is a very common belief. I'm just going to tell you, I really don't believe it's true. As the king of the nation, as a king of international recognition, he would normally be wearing his royal robes. But if he was wearing his royal robes at this time, he would be the center of attention. He's not wearing his royal robes. He's wearing a linen ephod, which is the simple clothing of a priest. 
you go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 18. Remember when Samuel was a boy? What did he wear when he was a, a boy serving at the temple in Shiloh? A linen ephod, the same thing, simple clothing of a priest. Not in modest, just simple. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 22, you'll remember this quote. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed that day 85 persons who wore the what? Linen ephod. It's very simple clothing. The ark is coming to town. David is not wearing his royal robes to distract from the ark. He doesn't want to wear his royal robes to emphasize his greatness. He's wearing the simple common clothes of the priest as a way of saying, I'm not special here. I'm just another person in need of God's grace, and God is the one who gets all the attention. I told you 1 Chronicles has some parallels here. Look what it says in 1 Chronicles about this. And David was clothed with a, clo with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and the Kaniah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. Everybody's wearing that. He's blending in. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. By the way, Chronicles parallel is interesting here. It says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Now I'm going to have just a little fun with this. For those of you who don't like loud music, apparently David did. And you notice here they have harps and lyres which are stringed instruments. So they had electric, there's the guitars and they had cymbals. That was the percussion section. So he's like, hey, we are going to rock the house because the ark is coming to town. That's sort of what they're going on with here. Now as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael the daughter of Saul looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him. Notice here, she is not called David's wife. She is called Saul's daughter. That's a picture of her heart. She has a heart just like her father. Not a compliment, my friends. Not a compliment at all. She looks out the window and sees David dancing, wearing a common linen ephod, and she despises him because David you should be wearing your royal robes and looking like somebody instead of somebody ordinary. Then we read this. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem, 
Now, the original tent had probably been destroyed by the Philistines at Shiloh years before. My guess is this tent was exactly like was prescribed in the Old Testament because David had learned at this point to be really careful to obey what God says. There are consequences when you don't. Then David offered a sacrifice of atonement, taking care of sin, and he also offered a peace offering, which is also called a fellowship offering. It's called a church meal. (laughs) Well, everybody eats together after the ark has finally arrived, and they celebrate. Then David prayed for them, and he sent them home with a packed lunch. That's what it is. He had a lunch packed for them. But back to Michael, the unhappy wife. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel, how the king of Israel honored himself today by uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's hot. She's angry. By the way, you notice how she comes out of the house and then throws him under the bus in front of other people? By the way, guys, just a little poll. How many of you like it if your wife berates you in public? Why are no hands going up? We're scared, yeah. Yeah, none of us like it when our wife berates us in public. I mean, this, that, that causes some serious marital friction when your wife throws you under the bus in front of your friends, right? And that's exactly what she does, throws him under the bus. Then she accuses himself of uncovering himself in front of the female servants. Now, folks, we know this did not happen. He was not dressed inappropriately. He was dressed simply. She is upset that he wasn't wearing his royal robes, that he was blending in. And she wanted David to look like a king and to act like a big king. She didn't care about the fact the ark had come in. She cared about the fact her great husband had come in. Now, here's some great point of application. The thought came to mind. I think Michael and David are what you would call unequally yoked. David is interested in God. He's very interested in the ark. He's interested in obedience to God, being humble before God. Michael was not in the crowd welcoming the ark into the city. She was more upset that her husband was not wearing his royal clothes than the fact that the ark of God had come to the royal city. She has been described in this passage as Saul's daughter, not David's wife because she has a heart just like her father. David and Michael were not on the same page spiritually, and it led to great friction in their marriage. Here's the application. If you're somebody who's single, it doesn't matter how beautiful a woman is. It doesn't matter how much money a guy has. It doesn't matter how charming the other person is. If they do not love Jesus Christ like you love Jesus Christ and you marry them, you are in for a disaster because you are building your marriage with two different sets of blueprints. 
One set of blueprint that says Jesus and God is important, and another set of blueprints that says Jesus and God are not important. And it is constant conflict. The Bible says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? Another one is good. Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I think David and Michael were unequally yoked. And David said to Michael, well, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. By the way, the ESV says, I will make myself more contemptible than this. And they base that off the Septuagint, but the original Hebrew has a word that says, I will make myself lesser than this, which I think is probably a better translation. Because isn't that what she's upset about? That he's not wearing his royal robes? That he's conducting himself just as an ordinary person in need of God's grace? He says, if you think you're upset that because I wore a linen ephod, before God I'll be even less. Because the only thing I have a claim, I want to ask for from him, and what I desperately need from him is his grace. And then we read, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Some applications uh, we went through in this message. Number one, obedience to the word of God leads to blessing from God. Isn't that the second time? Once he learned to obey the word of God, things worked well. When he disobeyed the word of God, it didn't work well. Number two, when we sin, we will suffer. Number three, suffering comes from sin even when we don't recognize our sin. This is why it is wise for us to constantly read, obey, and grow in our knowledge of God's word so we can see sin and recognize it. Because we're not going to see it if we're just trusting our gut instincts or the culture around us. And lastly is this lesson from David and Michael. Do not be unequally yoked. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, not just for your holiness where you judged us when <laughs> they disobeyed, but thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that your desire is not to destroy your people, but your desire for us is to give us life and joy. I ask, Lord, as a church, that we wouldn't just be focusing on the goodness that you've given to us, but we would be a church that also remembers the holiness of the God we worship. That we would take you seriously, that we would take you respectfully, and that we would love your word, which shows us the truth about how much you love us and what you've done for us, and it also shows us the truth about what sin is and how we can avoid it. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.